Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. Before we dive into this week's episode, I'd like to mention a wonderful new history festival that's taking place at Harvington Hall in July. If you haven't heard of Harvington Hall before, it's a stunning and unique Elizabethan moated manor house in Worcestershire. A number of acclaimed medieval and Tudor historians will be giving talks there over six days, including Dr. Elizabeth Norton, Jesse Child, Matt Lewis, and Nathan Armin. For the full lineup and tickets, please visit Harvington Hall's website. I'd also like to acknowledge and thank the generous listeners who continue to support my podcast on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors Patreon community. Visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Now is actually a great time to join because you'll receive two months free when you pledge annually before the 30th of June 2023. Join the Talking Tudors patron family to instantly unlock access to 138 exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to enter patron-only monthly giveaways. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited to welcome David Lee back to the podcast to discuss his new book on the Cecil family. David is an Irish historian who specializes in women's history, particularly women in power from the 15th to the 19th centuries. He also has an interest in the history of courtship and marriage. David is the author of The Queen's Frog Prince, The Courtship of Elizabeth I and the Duke of Anjou, and The Cecils, The Dynasty and Legacy of Lord Burley. He lives in Kildare with his husband Victor. Let's dive straight into this episode. Welcome back to Talking Tudors, David. How are you? I'm great. Uh, thank you so much for having me on again. <laughs> Lovely to have yeah, you back on the great. show. So we're, we're going to talk about the Cecils because excitingly your new book has been published. How are you feeling? It's been a, a long time coming. Um, it's been uh, stressful. It's been amazing. It's been fantastic. And to finally see it now and in, in its finished form, it, yeah, it's so exciting. Um, I, I feel great. I'm really excited for people to read it. Yeah, yeah that's so exciting. I can't wait to get my copy. And so let's start maybe by you telling us just a little bit about William Cecil, who I'm sure lots of people know, but you can introduce him, his pre-reign relationship with Elizabeth. Could you tell us a little bit about that? 
he was um Lord Burley, uh, well, or eventually he became Lord Burley, and he was Elizabeth I chief advisor and minister, um, what we would kind of now determine as a, a prime minister, I suppose, in, in a form. Um, yes, he was he was Elizabeth's guiding hand throughout her reign, and uh, and then his son uh, Robert Cecil would later take over. So yeah, his his relationship with Elizabeth is interesting. It's not known when Elizabeth and William first really came to know each other. It's known that she certainly was aware of his position under the Lord Protector, who was Edward Seymour, Edward VI's uncle. And she knew he had a position of considerable influence by that stage. We don't know whether she may have, I mean, I always kind of referred to, to David Lodes, who I think suggested that per- perhaps it was something to do with an- his connections with Anthony Cook, who I believe had some sort of position in Edward VI's household, perhaps as a tutor or, or, or under tutor or something like that. And so it seems that she certainly knew that he was a man of considerable influence already and that he was on the rise. And the reason we know that their relationship, I suppose, that pre-reign even existed is because we have a letter uh, written from Elizabeth to William in 1547 when she was about 14. And of course, when she was about 14, 15, we know that scandal that's kind of going on. I won't go into that. That's another topic, <laughs> but with, uh, with Thomas Seymour. And so this is kind of within the first year-ish of her of her brother's reign where he's, uh, you know, first of all, the king's stability and the protectorate's stability. It's kind of all shaky, but also kind of Elizabeth's position is shaky as well. She is the sister or half-sister to the king. But we, we all know, you know, what happened with her mother, Anne Boleyn, and her sister, Mary, um, who is much older than her, has also a similar situation. So we know in this letter that she's requesting that William commends her servant, and his name was Goodacre. And she's recommending him to the Lord Protector's service. So obviously this is a man that's worked in her household for some time. She's fond of him. She knows him. We, we don't know really the ins and outs of, of of this. But anyway, she's recommending him and William's the person to go to, obviously. And this, of course, it may have been their first correspondence, official correspondence, or it may not have been. It's known that by this stage, by the time she's about maybe 13, 14, William's kind of already having some sort of influence over Elizabeth's estates. Certainly by the time she's 16, 17, he's really undertaking some uh, some serious work for estates. We, we're not sure what that is, but we do know from, from records that it's certainly substantial. And so this shows to me that she was aware of his rising star and his influence and Maybe, I mean, she didn't have a lot of people to trust at this time in her life. Maybe she felt he was someone that she could trust. Fantastic. And and I suppose we do hear quite a lot about William Cecil, but perhaps not so much about some of the Cecil women. So do you want to talk a little bit about maybe his family, the women in his family, and how <clears throat> his relationships with his children worked or how they were, and maybe how his career affected those familial relationships as well? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. That's actually the, the main reason why I, I kind of undertook this study. And I wasn't really sure whether I was going to even produce a book out of it or perhaps an article or you know even I, I was like considering maybe a PhD or something you know to to kind of uh, use this as my topic I think the women in his life are so you know they're, they're so overlooked and people have written books about his life and his biography and, and his children and his certainly his son Robert's career but it's so easy to forget that besides being a politician and a statesman and advisor to Elizabeth and certainly a man on a mission William was very much 
a family man. And this is what I kind of want to bring through in my, in my book. Especially during his second marriage, William was a devoted husband, father, and later grandfather. You know, in terms of his duties, often said that he kind of held his duty to the Queen and Crown higher than that of his family. And it seems that, in my opinion, this is kind of true. And um, sadly, it, it doesn't mean he loves his family any less. But unfortunately, um, I think that was simply his nature. So we know that his first marriage to Mary Cheek, uh, some people say Czech, I'm going to say Cheek. So in around 1541, when they were, they were married, and their marriage was actually based on love, it seems. For William, to us, the man that we know, that seems kind of rather impulsive. So this is something that later in his life, I don't think he may have regretted. But I definitely think he learned from it. But sadly, Mary died in 1543 and thus leaving William as a young, broken-hearted widower. He was then a single father to their infant son, Thomas, who um, he would have a hierarchy relationship with. And whether it was due to William's grief or his, his studies at the time or his growing career, or his ideas for his career, at least at this time, he really neglected to form that close bond with his eldest son, and he was also, you know, his heir. I mean, he had no title at this stage, but he was ambitious. And yeah, their relationship was rocky uh, for most of William's life. Thomas was not as dutiful or studious as his father, but he did go on to have a successful career and marriage and children. And that's, you know, it's kind of ironic because William expected so little from his eldest son. But it's a second marriage to Mildred Cook that I am really, really interested in. And they married her in around 1546. And it's far more advantageous than his previous marriage. She's certainly not nobility. And William is not noble. Um, really, they're, they're both commoners. But um, despite this, I think it's a marriage of, I, w- I won't say convenience, um, but the, the family had, had standing. But their marriage was, ha- was really happy. They were happily married for 43 years, which I think Abby, any of us will be. That's a long time. <laughs> de- delighted to have. And that's an amazing feat for the period. You know, divorce obviously wasn't quite common. But, you know, marriages broke down and people even separated. Even later, we can discuss that William's daughter eventually kind of had a separation of her own. And the couple's four children were really well educated and they lived rather luxurious lifestyles. But they were far from perfect. And I think William knew this and especially perhaps not his wife or his mother. But I think in terms of the women in his family, they were kind of a... I won't say disappointing, but they made choices, you know. <laughs> so their eldest daughter, um, she was born in about 1554. It took several years for Mildred to get pregnant. And we don't know why. We don't know how William or Mildred felt about this. We don't know if it was a choice, um, but it certainly took her several years to, to get pregnant. But she did. And sadly, within a few hours of being born, their eldest daughter, Frances, actually died. And this is devastating to the couple, obviously. Even William recorded it in his in his commonplace book. And this is in stark contrast to the belief that Judas did not care about their children or simply indifferent to child mortality. It's even more telling that he actually recorded it simply hours after her birth and death. As we know with, for example, with Anne Boleyn, which I know you're familiar with uh, the topic of the date of her birth. They didn't. It's not that they didn't care, but it just wasn't thought of as important enough to record the birth or the death of a baby girl quite sad but they they did go on to have other children of course so again in 1556 a couple years later their daughter Anne was born and during this time this is obviously during the reign of Mary the first Queen Mary it brings them great joy that they have finally a child of their own whether it be a girl or not I don't I don't really think it really mattered to William at this stage he did have his son and his heir I think they were just genuinely happy to have a child of course, during the 
round of May the first, it's quite I, I wouldn't say entirely dangerous for the Cecils, but I mean his career didn't end, but it definitely took a step back. And this actually is really interesting. It's probably one of the most interesting times of the, the Cecil family life is because it allowed William to step back. He still had a career, he still had a home. Maybe he wasn't as financially stable as late as he later on was, but he he wasn't poor. And it means that he actually got to spend a lot of time with his family. And so they moved to Wimbledon. And then uh, this is kind of just after their first daughter's death. For some time, they're out there for a few years and Mildred gets pregnant again. And their son, Thomas, actually joins them. And this is interesting because uh, he had spent some time away from William. He had spent some time with his grandmother, William's mother, Jane. And then finally, he's brought back into the family fold. And I think Mildred did her best to ensure the Cecil household was one of peace and kind of happiness, but they struggled <laughs> like other people. Mildred was somewhat of a stern woman, but she was said to be kind. And, and she did remain at William's side often, but she wasn't a woman who preferred to be at court. So she would have preferred to reside in one of their London homes, such as Burley House on the Strand or Theobald's later on. I think today we would kind of refer to her as his long-suffering wife, even mm-hmm. though that she was she was quite dutiful and, and happy to, I suppose, not keep in the shadows, but keep out of the way in terms of politics. But that's not to say she didn't have political views or that she was indifferent or that she was unintelligent. We know for a fact that she was intelligent. She did have political views and she was, she was extremely well educated for a woman of her time. It's known that William was a scholar and a genealogist and antiquarian, perhaps what we would now kind of call um, a historian. But it's not common knowledge that his wife was also a scholar in her own right and that she was actually an avid uh, translator of religious texts and she had impressive had an impressive library and she spoke Greek, Latin and French. So, that is impressive, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we 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 know Elizabeth the first um, spoke many languages, including Greek, Latin, and French. I do believe she spoke some Gaelic, Gaelic, and Cornish as well. But I mean, for for a woman of of Jane's background, you know, certainly not nobility, but definitely nouveau riche. It, it's great to see that she had this mind, brilliant mind. She had ideas, and though she didn't express them in the way we might think nowadays, we might think we would want her to have done and um, she she definitely had opinions and she definitely she knew what she was talking about so william obviously was completely committed to elizabeth and you know it reminds me a bit of thomas cromwell in the sense of how hard working <laughs> they both both these men were and i know that, yeah. that certainly affected cromwell's health what about yeah. william cecil's health did his lifestyle his work all that stress that must have been on him did that kind of have an impact on his health yeah, I mean, William really dedicated his life to his career and his work in a way that today we we may not understand. We're talking about a man who slept maybe, I mean, max three or four hours. And by this time, people were sleeping throughout the night. It's not like slightly earlier where people are kind of getting up in the middle of the night. And then and also people of gentric, uh, you know, gentry stock or slightly more elevated in society, they don't have to get up in the middle of the night. And so by this stage, we know that we're not sure how, mu- how much sleep people are really getting at nighttime, but sleep is a big problem for, for William and he doesn't get a lot of it, maybe three, four hours. If he's lucky, he'll probably get five. But this is in general based on his own writings and, and what what we know from his, his biographer, his famous biographer, who may have lived in his household. But certainly by 1589, William's health had been absolutely declining for decades. 
And it's it's funny how the last question kind of comes in with this one, it blends in with this one because William had two daughters. As mentioned, he had Anne and he also had his daughter Elizabeth, named for the Queen, who was actually Elizabeth's first uh, goddaughter. And by 1589, William had long been suffering what with what we call gout. And yes, it was it was even called gout then. It had many uh, many had many slang names. Even during the 1560s, you know, he this is in, early in Elizabeth's reign. Um, we know he attended about 97% of Privy Council meetings. Though that small percentage that he didn't, we know it's because he was ill and he was already suffering from something likely early gout or perhaps something else. We're not sure. By the 1570s, we see a drop in his attendance substantially. And this is this is really telling because William is a man who's dedicated to his career, he's dedicated to the state, the Elizabethan state, especially by the 1570s. This idea of the Elizabethan state is certainly forming. And so it, it's preoccupying his mind. And it's sad because definitely by 1589, he has times where he's struggling to get out of bed. He cannot move. He's in absolute agony. I mean, there's no real pain relief during the period. So he's kind of just left to be in pain until it kind of goes down. And so I think the original source of his many ailments that came later came from gout. And obviously this is because of his lifestyle. We know that gout is caused by a buildup of uric acid, which basically causes one's joints to be inflamed and become painful and then you can't move. And there's no cure. So by 1589, he's, he's experienced years and years of this ailment and other things added on. Obviously, his immune system is probably not great either. Uh, there's many records of him having to take to the country for some time because he's ill, whether it's gout or not, we're not sure. But it's also because by 1589, William has lost almost all of the influential women in his life. He lost his mother that year. I believe the year before he uh, lost his wife. And by that stage, both of his daughters have died. You know, his eldest daughter, a surviving daughter, Anne, actually died. She really was a long-suffering wife of the Earl of Oxford. And that was, that's another scandal on its own. We could do a whole other topic on we this. We could do, I was just thinking, scandals <laughs> could, of the um, period. I like it. Yeah, <laughs> we de- yeah, we could definitely have a, another chat on the Oxford uh, marriage. It's absolutely scandalous. But obviously, this all takes its toll on his daughter's um, health. She also passes away in the, in the later 1580s. And so this is a terrible blow to him. And then in succession, he loses his wife and then his mother. But sadly, his youngest daughter, actually, she, I think it's, anyone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's 1584 she passed away. And that's very early into into her marriage. And this is a marriage that she very much wanted. And sadly, her, her husband actually passed really early on into their marriage. And then shortly afterwards, there there's a record that Elizabeth herself passed away. And it's not known that they had any children, any issue. So the 1580s, it's also the time of the Armada crisis, yeah, so I was just war with Spain, <laughs> religious tensions in Europe. And so on top of his his ailments, he has all of these one after the other, really uh, devastating, devastating um, losses. And then an armada to deal with, a threat to the Elizabethan state and everything that he he worked so hard to to create alongside alongside Elizabeth. So it's it's really sad that 
you know, not only is he ill and suffering for such a great man of the time, but he's he went through so much loss and, and tragedy as well. That is a lot to deal with, isn't it, for, for any person, even someone of his sort of calibre. You've mentioned a few times, David, his son, Robert, Robert Cecil. So can yes. you tell us a little bit about his sort of rise to power and maybe his relationships with some of the contemporaries, some of his contemporaries as well? Yeah, so my book is not just a study on, on William. It's a study on uh, his son, Robert, as well. And so I would say half to three quarters of my book is a discussion of William's life, but with Robert in it. And then the rest is Robert going through towards the end of Elizabeth's reign and into James I's reign. But Robert's so interesting because from the beginning of his education at a really early, early age, Robert was considered to be the future of, of his father's growing career and therefore he's he's conditioned to the notion that he would one day lead a successful career in politics like his father so by this time his elder brother thomas uh, he's on his own path and though he's also successful he would also carry on the Cecil legacy in a more formal way and that's of primogeniture robert could not succeed his father later on with the title of lord lord burley but he could inherit something much greater in my opinion and that's becoming chief advisor and so by the time Lord Burley is ailing and he's a he's an old man he's on his way out really it's kind of apparent although Elizabeth doesn't like to make things apparent but it's one of those things where it's kind of like everyone knows and so it's kind of clear that his education and later apprenticeship under his father proved successful and and we know that because later he would become Lord Privy Seal and Secretary of State. And this is also during his father's lifetime. So we know that his education was a success in comparison to his brothers. Uh, and, and we know that he was he was really conditioned and set up with, for this for the rest of his life. But he was not alone in his in his talents and ambitions, because though Elizabeth favoured Robert and maybe she agreed in private with William and not, she never openly promised it until after um, William's passing, but it's kind of known. But there was another young, talented and really zealous young man, you know, man, which is Robert Devereux. And Devereux is, you know, the second Earl of Essex. The two Roberts, they weren't really unfamiliar with one another. Uh, Devereux was, he was a ward of Lord Burley's. And not only this, but he was, he was a stepson of Elizabeth I's favourite, and we all know Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, the very famous man. And their rivalry really may have began rather innocently as, uh, you know, as two young men, maybe perhaps in the household, perhaps not, but, you know. Yeah, like jostling the power, hey? Jostling and, uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, edging themselves, you know, towards the Queen for her favour. And it's really unfortunate because for Robert, he did not possess the beauty or charm of the Earl of Essex. Uh, William Cecil, for all his adoration of his son's talents, was equally as mesmerised by by the young Earl of Essex and his uh, ability to catch attention and his virility and his his youth and his his beauty as well, I suppose. But in time, it's funny because in time, Devereux would show his true colours and he would fall in and out of favour with the Queen. And eventually he was executed, you know, we know for treason in 1601 for leading the rebellion uh, against Elizabeth's government. And by that time, that's Robert Cecil. So it's somewhat tragic that the two men were equally as promising and talented, but they could not come together. And it's sad that it ended on, they both ended on entirely different paths, where I think 
because because they're both so well educated and they're both you know of similar backgrounds and they spent time perhaps in their childhood with each other it's it's sad that they reared so far away from each other when they they could have actually been quite useful together i think i think what's equally as fascinating was robert's relationship with james the sixth of scotland or james later james the first and i know especially recently their, their correspondence is kind of still controversial and it's a topic of discussion and whether robert's promising things to james or not but as robert succeeded his father and after after William's death in, in 1589, and this is, of course, when Robert Devereux's star began to fade, it's clear that Devereux had been long in contact with James I himself and the Earl of Mark. And so instead of disregarding this, Robert also decided to take up correspondence with uh, the Scottish king. And James was Mary Queen of Scots' son, obviously, and therefore he had a really strong claim to Elizabeth's throne. And... The older Elizabeth grew, the more bellious, I guess, that, that people became. It's obviously less likely that she's going to name an heir, especially of the woman, the son of the woman, sorry, that she executed. So James himself certainly knew of the succession crisis in England, and he was also acutely aware of his mother and father's claim to the English throne, even during Elizabeth's youth. But James is acutely aware of Cecil's influence and power. And by 1603, the Cecils had dominated the English political landscape and everything that went through Robert's hands, everything that went through anyone's hands went through Robert's hands, especially by 1603. So James was sure to keep in touch with Robert and Robert was sure to keep in touch with James. And of course, Elizabeth dies in 1603 and Robert keeps his word that he will influence James's claim and James becomes king. They themselves have their own little, you know, their own little relationship. And some of, you know, the correspondence is, is sparse. It, it exists. There's lots of theories and rumours coming around, around during the time, whether they meet or whether they don't meet. And there's, you know, there's this discussion of their meeting or not. And it's just so fascinating that a man, son of Lord Burley, who, Lord Burley, who really worked so hard to make himself, he was very self-made and his son is corresponding with the possible heir to throne and deciding who becomes king of England. It's so it's it's incredible. Yeah, he certainly learned a lot from his father, I think, no doubt. He, he, cer <laughs> he certainly did. Yeah. Um, and so the story of the Cecils, of course, doesn't end with the death of Lord Burley, as if you've already explained. So tell us maybe a little bit about the, the family legacy and a little bit about some of their descendants as well. Yeah, so we know that the Cecil family had long served the Tudors by the time Robert and Thomas's sons, and they're both named William for their grandfather. Yeah, just to confuse uh, us. <laughs> just to confuse everyone. Everyone, everyone, by the way, in this family is Robert or William or Thomas, <laughs> every or Anne or Elizabeth or Mary. <laughs> so unfortunately, there's only one Mildred. Um, but uh, this is this is just how it goes. But, but both named their son William for for their grandfather, and both came into their own. And by this time, the political structure of England had actually changed completely from William's early career as a comparison. So William Cecil's eldest male grandchildren not only inherited his name as well as their their own father's titles, but also the legacy of what Lord Burley, or, or rather, who Lord Burley was. And this is what my book is all about. So I felt it really important to add this into my book about the Cecils and, and, and not just the Cecils of the Tudor period, but where they brought us, where their politics brought politics today, especially in Britain. Politics and duty to the crown, especially duty to the crown, 
was really, really ingrained. It's it's in the Cecil blood. And, you know, the Cecils went on to serve politics. Um, most of them, many of them, not most of them, but many of them were uh, politicians, MPs, and had roles on even the Privy Council later on. And they even survived the decade of the English, uh, you know, the English Republic under Oliver Cromwell. I really think that one Cecil in particular, that being Robert Gascon Cecil, he was the third Marcus of Salisbury, so he's a descendant of Robert Cecil. And he actually went on to become Prime Minister three times under Queen Victoria, and he's really, really famous and really, really well known. And his career soared and his wealth grew absolutely, absolutely immensely during this time. And, you know, today, the Cecil family legacy, it lives on in British culture and especially in British politics. Like myself, you love to visit the UK. It's, it's so beautiful. But many of the great houses or even the great Cecil houses, but many of them, you know, from their time, they've lasted absolutely hundreds of years. For example, like Theopold's is gone. But, you know, Hatfield survives and Hatfield is, is the home to all of these um, documents and letters and everything I've used in, in, my, in my books. And there's absolute thousands of letters written by William and Robert Cecil that have been passed on throughout the centuries from their family. And so it's not just about the preservation of one family and their legacy. It's understanding that that legacy is also British legacy. We really see that now, even today, currently. The current and seventh Marcus of Salisbury, known as Baron Gascon Cecil, is uh, Robert Michael James Gascon Cecil. But he also carried on the Cecil uh, family legacy and serves as a politician for the British Conservative Party. The family are still landowners. They're still well-known. They're still connected to the current royal family. And they, they had a great connection to the late Queen Elizabeth II. And of course, their house, their magnificent Brady uh, house is open to the public and it remains also a family home for Cecil relatives today. So the Cecils, they didn't just end with Robert Cecil and then, you know, his son William. His son William and his nephew William didn't really just fade into obscurity. They, you know, they became politicians. They carried on the family legacy. And later on, you know, one of their descendants became Prime Minister three times. It just goes to show that really that Cecil genius, it continued, continued to change, um, but it also really developed into something else. And it's really part of, I think, the British identity and, and de definitely politics today. That's absolutely fascinating. And and so any of our listeners that are wanting to obviously learn more and hear more, I recommend they go and purchase your book, which is available now. So yes. that's fantastic. And so you obviously yes. spent a long time working on this particular project. So what's next for you, David? What are you what are you keeping busy with? Oh my goodness. So <laughs> yeah, I I was going to take a break. Um, yes. uh, as, uh, um, as you know, my second book, The Queen's Frog Prince, is uh, due out in on June 30th. Uh, it's actually the first book I ever wrote, but for some reason it uh, coming out after The Cecils, <laughs> which is my second book. But this is how these things happen. You know what it, you know what it's like. But I actually am in the middle of writing my third book. Oh, um, fabulous. I, yes. I, I, I don't want to say too much because, it, you know, I, I, I want to keep this. I won't twist your arm. Don't worry. We'll be patient. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is, it well, about, uh, is it about the Tudor period? Maybe you can just say, answer that. Um, no, it's oh. actually not. It's uh, mm -hmm. No, it's uh, I would consider it late Georgian well, so that does sound yeah, it's uh, it's 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 really a, a regency book, um, and it's obviously 
it's a book on a very famous woman. That is what I will say. Fabulous. Yeah, that's, look, that sounds <laughs> um, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, so I'm really excited. It's it's in the works now. It's going to take some time, but I'm really excited. It's definitely outside of my comfort zone, um, but it's a joy to work on it. So I'm really excited for everyone to hear more about it. Yes, we can't wait. All right, well, keep us updated. All right, David, this has been such a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your insights into the Cecil family with us. And I hope to speak to you again in the future about your your other works. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a delight to be on. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.